Hi, it's Carolyn. Welcome back to Racehorses, etc. In today's episode, we catch up with one of the best and the toughest blacksmiths in bluegrass history, Beach Faulkner. Beach has shod the who's who of thoroughbred stallions, including Raisin Native, Nashua, Unbridled, Seattle Slough, and Foolish Pleasure, to name just a few. He's tough as iron. But Beach has a tenderness and a deep respect for horses. With his uncanny ability to read them, Beach will do whatever it takes and fight to the end to do right by the horse. This is Racehorses Etc., the podcast celebrating horsemanship. I'm Carolyn Conley. I've covered horse racing on TV for over a decade, exercised some of the best horses in the world, and represented top jockeys. Here, I speak to icons and everyday racing folks to deepen our understanding of horsemanship. Beach, welcome to the show. Thank you. You've been remembered with such regard from the people that know the real stories of the bluegrass in terms of your contribution to the success of many racehorses and stallions. How does it feel to be regarded in such high esteem by your peers? Well, it's, it's certainly great. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it got me in with all the best of the people. And you've been with the best of the horses. And we've, in my open, I mentioned Unbridled and other great horses that you've worked with. But I want to go back to the beginning and find out where this craft was developed. Uh, you told me you were the son of a sharecropper who used horses to grow the crops. Tell me a little bit about that. That's exactly right. In Clark County, Kentucky, my dad was a sharecropper for the uh, Evanses, uh, great people. And uh, they was, uh, it was in the late 40s, the early 50s, when the tr they were getting transferred from horses to tractors. And we still had all the stationary equipment. Uh, the horses were used to haul hay and stuff to the stationary bellers. And my dad took care of most all of the horses. And I was real impressed when it would come to, uh, time to, uh, on a rainy day, to shoe the horses. And my dad had to do most all of them because the other people would fade out and he kept going. Was there a blacksmith shop right on the property? Really good blacksmith shop. It was at J.O. Evans's on Pretty Run Pike, Clark County, Kentucky. Uh, and I stayed there every, every minute I could. Uh, and thank you for asking. You said something about as a kid you were just itching to get into the forge. Yes. Yes, it, it, it drawed like a moth to the flame. It says <laughs> I had to, had, to go, had to go in it. I think it was because my dad was so good at it and, and everybody respected him. Uh, and I, I was craving for that, I guess. Well, and he gave you a chance at a very young age. Didn't he buy you your own horse about yeah. 10, 11 years old? Yes, that's exactly right. And I, and I spent every waking hour on her. <laughs> uh, and he, he also broke horses for other people when they get out of control. And he, he was an excellent horseman himself. So you were able to experience horses both underneath them, putting shoes on your own horse, and then riding the horses as well. Yes, yes. Well, what a wonderful beginning. Take me from there to how you started getting involved in different breeds of horses as a blacksmith yourself. And and you know what? Before we even get there, I asked you before we started, do you like to be called a blacksmith 
or a farrier, and you said blacksmith, and just tell me why one more time. A blacksmith is, uh, works with the iron. A farrier, he uh, does uh, in, uh, in the 1800s and back in, as far as I can uh, read and go, the farrier worked for the blacksmith. The blacksmith would make the shoes, pull the plow points, whatever, and the farrier would put them on the horse. That's where the two words came in. Now we have such great uh, uh, blacksmith supply places, farrier supply places, they could just go up and buy them. They don't have to work for the blacksmith anymore. But you spent time actually making the shoes. I did. Uh, for, for a blacksmith uh, down in uh, Mississippi, we manufactured uh, shoes and bailed them all, shipped them all over the world. His name was R.C. Hughes. He was a walking horse uh, blacksmith. Before that, he was a he was a trainer, and a very knowledgeable man. Well, and that was your experience with walking horses. You've mentioned working with gated horses, with standard breds. Uh, take me through some of those breeds and what they taught you early in your career. Well, with my knowledge of the uh, walking horse, that that opened the gate for the standard bred horses. And the standard bred horses brought me back to Kentucky, which I was a homeboy. And uh, I got to working at the Red Mile with a, another excellent blacksmith named Colonel Lowell Roberts. Uh, he also would make shoes and ship them out, and that was my job. And we get to uh, work on the horses, and they would actually put me in the buggies sometimes, and uh, sometimes I would get to drive them. But most of the time to go in there was with a trainer with having problems traveling. And believe you me, Carolyn, you have a bird's eye view of the path of flight of a horse from the jog cart. Uh, everybody needs to ride in a jog cart at least once. Uh, and that was repeated by a uh, saddle horse trainer over in Georgetown named Frank Bradshaw, who uh, Colonel worked for them and I uh, helped him and later on I took uh, when uh, the colonel got down I did the whole job and I got to shoot that great mare my my her last time by myself that's my claim to fame but uh, Frank would put me in the jog cart now is she the six-time world champion gated mare y yes she was yeah. and you you were able to drive her too I got to drive her one time uh, not that far <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I got to drive her and uh, Mr. Frank was so uh, appreciative of it, uh, of uh, fixing the others, because she had no problems, absolutely no problems. Her only problem was when you went into the stall to get her, you had to wait for her to come to the door. If you went in, you came out fast. <laughs> <laughs> but she would, uh, when she when it was, she would just go around and go with you when when she got her mind up. Well, and it's funny, you talk about mules and what impact they had on your understanding of equine behavior, and your patience has certainly paid off in your career. What lessons have horses like Mai Mai and maybe even the mules taught you over the years? Mai Mai was, uh, I, re I really can't say because she had absolutely no problems, and I think that was because of Mr. Bradshaw. Uh, the mules now, the, uh, thank you so much for asking about them. The mule was my babysitter. <laughs> yeah, when I was uh, growing up, 
uh, daddy would put, my mother worked in the fields with my dad, and uh, they would put the harness on the mule and she'd just stay with them. So I'd get to go with them all the time. You'd sit up on the mule? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was, she was a very smart creature. And you talk about the patience of a mule and how that serves them. Uh, a mule, that's why they're so misunderstood by the pub, by people. Uh, when uh, something is going not right, and you of all people should know from uh, your experience riding, uh, when something is not right, they just shut down. And people call that stubborn. It's not. They're uh, waiting for you to get your act together or for them to figure it out. And this kind of patience and understanding played a huge part in your career with some of the greatest stallions of all time, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I wanted to um, move into your transition to thoroughbreds a little bit. You'd spent time with these gated horses, with standard breads, uh, with walking horses, mules, all this experience, and then you end up in the thoroughbred industry. Tell me how that transition took place. All right, I was in a saddle horse barn shoeing horses, and this one was close to being like uh, my ma. She was also a world champion horse, and uh, my ma only wore a uh, six ounce plate on her front. This, this uh, stallion that I was doing down at Danville, he was also a world champion. I'd done him from, since day number one. And to put that little plate on, and the trainer came in and said, well, now you're going to have to cut your prices because there's no work to that, and really there's nothing. Just nailing a plate on for what I'd been doing, making shoes and pads and all that. And he said, you're going to have to cut your prices. Well, there was a phone call at home waiting on a thoroughbred farm for me to come and help him for the same price, so that was my transition. So what'd you find when you got under a thoroughbred that you hadn't seen with saddlebreds and standard breads and walking horses? That is so much simpler, and uh, a little bit does more on a short foot than it did on a long foot. I was, I was scared that I couldn't, uh, that I would have to, some trouble with it, but the uh, short foot operates fast. And uh, it was actually easier, simpler. I would almost think it'd be a little intimidating when you had a lot of foot to work with with these other breeds, and then you've got less foot on a thoroughbred, right? And you're putting those nails in? You're exactly right. That's exactly what it, the, the proper word was intimidating. Yeah. But it works. <laughs> well, you certainly found your way. The list is long of some of the great stallions that you ended up taking care of. Um, over at Spendthrift, where I know you spent a lot of time, John Williams put together a list that included names like Nashua, Gallant Man, Caro, Raisa Native, Prince Kilo, Seattle Slough, uh, Fleet Nazrula, Kennedy Road. The list goes on and on. It's just incredible. Um, your relationship with John Williams started before he was manager of Spendthrift. Take us through that. Actually, he was a, he was a yearling manager. And then he became uh, uh, general manager and then president later. And uh, gosh, I've been with him for 40-some years and, and counting. And what made the difference working with John where you're able to have so much success at Spendthrift? Because he worked with you. Uh, you, you have to work together. It's, it's, uh, 
it's a together game, and and I uh, I credit the guy taking care of the stall and as much as I do the trainer. And you also talked a little bit about the impact of a head man having faith in you. Exactly. You have to. It has to be a, a, a together game. We 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 have to work together, whether it be the veterinary, a horse trainer. Uh, or even the guy taking care of the horse in the stall. Uh, and if you get all that together, it works. But you were no pushover. If the head man didn't have faith in you, you, you might just walk out the door and go find another job. Very fast. <laughs> <laughs> I talked a little bit with your son, Tyler, who has followed in your footsteps and carried on the family business. And he mentioned how tough you were and how much courage you had. Uh, you weren't scared of anybody, were you? No. No. But to, to stand up and say, I know what I'm doing and to do it my way, that, that takes a lot of courage. It, it does. And, and if you, but you, uh, I have uh, went to prove that. Uh, if you uh, had a little doubt in my words, then we'd, let's, let me prove it. And then it works. If it don't, you, you don't need me. My father said two people that agree, one of them's not necessary. <laughs> well, and you started off taking care of horses like Unbridled um, at Gainesway, who was so sore, you said they couldn't even turn him out. What did you do for Unbridled? Uh, actually, I, it was a very simple job. I undone what they was doing. Uh, I just changed everything and uh, threw it away. The horse really didn't need anything. They was uh, doing a lot of, uh, lot of unnecessary work to him. And you worked with uh, Dr. Umfenauer. Great man. Thank you, yeah. Uh, he was, uh, I, I, I would uh, have to give him the uh, credit for helping me bring him out so fast because he had faith in me right off the start, which came from a neutral friend of ours. And did you collaborate over x-rays, that sort of thing? Is that how you yes. helped Unbridled? Yes, uh, with, with him taking charge and uh, giving me his, his knowledge, a very knowledgeable man. But then Unbridled was sold for $40 million and went over to Claiborne. I think he missed you over there, didn't he? He did, and they had to, uh, they'd call me to come and take care of him. <laughs> and with a little bit of uh, arguing over the marriage, I went over there and took care of him. And yeah. we fixed him again. And uh, you didn't just waltz over there at first asking. I think they had to uh, convince you that uh, they really needed you. That's right. They did. <laughs> Yeah. Which was which ended up a good thing. And now your son carries on the tradition over there. He's still right there with the same with the same stallions. Yeah. Does he ever come and ask you for a little advice? Once in a great while and lots of times I most of the time it's on race horses because he don't like to work on the racetrack. Uh, I I worked uh, all the way on the racetrack and would get calls in. Uh, fixed a lot of horses that were maybe speed cutting or hitting. And uh, so once in a while, he'll ask me a question. I think it's more out of respect because he could, he could figure it out through the process of elimination, if nothing else. Thank you for asking about him. <laughs> well, when we talked yesterday, too, you said once in a while he'd call on the old dinosaur. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and it makes me happy. Well, that's a lot of fun. Um, you also mentioned a man, Bill May. 
uh, racing commissioner who needed a little extra help, but in typical uh, beach style, you were not in a hurry to change your schedule. Uh, take me back to that 4 a.m. call. Uh, we'll do that. Uh, he called at uh, 4 a.m. in the morning and, and uh, told me that he had a, a sore yearling in uh, Frankfurt and I'll have to come over there and fix it. And I said, no, sir, I don't. Because I didn't know who I was, I didn't realize I was talking to the racing commissioner at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and immediately after I hung up, uh, the owner of, of my main job uh, called me and uh, raised a little eyebrow at me. And uh, I thought I was gone anyway, so it didn't matter. And uh, then the farm manager, John Williams, going back to this great guy, uh, called and he said, Beach, get your toolbox have it out on the road, we're coming, we gotta go to Frankfurt, and away we went. And we fixed this yearling, it was by Raisin Native, and it topped the Philly sale. What'd it bring? 300,000. Wow. Well, they knew who to call on to get the job done, as usual. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a good morning after John let his lips not be so tight. <laughs> <laughs> So, Beach, there was, when we first met at a farm auction out in Paris, Kentucky, where you're from, uh, you mentioned a horse, Foolish Pleasure, that John Williams had described as a killer because yeah. he was so tough. Yeah. Um, nobody could get shoes on this horse, but you could. How did you do it? I knew how to read the horse. He's a very professional horse, like a very professional person. Uh, they you don't go into somebody's house and run it. And that's exactly their house, that barn is. So I would uh, stake uh, everybody out of there, except uh, me and an old gentleman named Clem Brooks. And we, that horse would not even allow us to say good morning to each other. You didn't take, you didn't do anything. You just went in there and you did your job and it went good. Uh, no one was allowed to come out because if somebody was going to come around, he'd get rid of us. And then, so he could protect himself, I, I presume. Uh, later on, in, uh, as years rolled by, that horse went out to California and a, a gentleman in uh, Wyoming in the Bighorn Mountains bought him. And he had checked out and they found out that I was the only man that could put shoes on him. He asked me, he said, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want to come out and take care of this horse for me. And I said, I cannot come right now because I'm too busy, but I'll tell you how to do it. And I did. And the next night he called me so happy, he said, that really works. And all I did was tell him the way we did it, and it worked out there. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. But how did you know to do that? Uh... Like I told you a while ago, a mule was my babysitter. So I kind of know how to read these horses uh, from day, from uh, young. Uh, and, and you have to learn how to read them. Uh, you, but you are not as good as they are reading you, no matter how good you are. They are super. Well, that kind of respect has evolved over time in horsemanship. And we've seen people become a little less forceful with horses in recent years and more intuitive <clears throat> perhaps. But back when you were really busy here in Kentucky, being sort of intuitive and, and gentle was not necessarily the style 
I mean, did you take any jeering for your the way you handled some of these horses? Uh, yes, and some people walked away with black eyes. <laughs> you, uh, I didn't allow it. Uh, if uh, if we can't go, let's get out of here uh, because this is a horse farm. That's their place. Uh, when they uh, go to trying to steal the show, you don't need them. Yeah, thank you for asking that. I love that you. You stood up for the horses. Yeah, thank you. From day one. Yes, yes. And your son said you were tough. Nobody messed with you. Oh, those are just people that I bought popcorn at the fair. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about some of your other um, things, you know, that you've created working with horses. You showed me a walker where you had a mare in this sling where you were working on her feet. Yeah. Walk me through that. Uh, a friend of mine, a veterinary friend, uh, Roger Murphy, and his wife, was. Uh, she rescued horses. And she had a, a, a little horse uh, that she'd rescued from somewhere. It was so uh, weak it could not even stand up. But uh, Roger Murphy said, Dr. Roger Murphy said, that uh, if we can keep this thing moving, and uh, together we drove this pattern up and we built it in the shop and we hung this little filly up on this rack and we walked her twice a day. And she got really sassy. She, <laughs> it worked. Uh, and, uh, and then we did it, uh, Bob Hunt and I, Dr. Bob Hunt and I did it uh, on a standard bread successfully. And, Were these uh, founder cases? No, it was a broke bone on the uh, on the standard bread. I, uh, I think uh, that I was told it was the same injury that Barbaro had uh, on the back leg. Right. And we were successful with it. But, you, you know, to keep a horse moving, that keeps her heart up. That little mare, when uh, I would go down there to walk her, she actually hear my truck coming and start yelling for me. Really? Yes, yes. And that is a great feeling. Oh, isn't that wonderful? It and you is. were able to keep circulation in those feet because exactly. horses can't yeah. live without bearing weight on all four. Exactly. They, if, 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 they don't, if they don't move, they've got their uh, papers work on them. Beach, it's, it's fun to watch your reaction when you make an impact on a horse. Um, what horse really touched your heart the most in your career? It would be blue times. Blue Times, uh, he never was that great a stallion. He never was that great a horse, but he loved me. <laughs> you, uh, there was an old gentleman that worked up there, Clem Brooks, I mentioned him a while ago, and uh, he would show people around this great farm spendthrift. And he was in there, and people would say when I was up there, that's awful, I bet they don't like that. And Mr. Brooks would uh, say to the people, I'll bet you $20 I could let that horse out and he'd go lay his foot in that man's lap. And he would. He loved to have his feet worked on. So uh, we, we made a little money doing that. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you help him recover from an issue with his feet? Absolutely or? none. He was just a, a gentleman from the day one. Uh, and, and he would win your heart just by, uh, I guess, by his manners. He never get in your way. Uh, he, uh, he was my favorite. 
And what was his name again? Blue Times. Blue Times. Yeah. Nobody knows him. Blue Times. Yep. That's a lot of fun. Well, you know, I enjoyed talking with your son, Tyler, and uh, I wondered to myself, you know, what piece of advice did you give Tyler as he started his career? Go to college. And did he listen? No. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to... He's, he's, I, I, to, I told him uh, uh, if, if he, when he said he wants to work for me and shoe horses, wants to learn how to shoe horses, I told him to go on to college and he and would get some for, for, to fall back on. And about three days later, he came up to me and said, Daddy, how many college people work for you? And there's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he won that argument. He did indeed, and he still carries on at the farms where you established uh, your craft. That and, must feel pretty good. Yes, and, and may I add that he helped establish a lot of those too. He kept it. Uh, he uh, he kept everything going. And what qualities does Tyler have that you hoped he would carry forward when he's working with horses? The the, the horsemanship. Uh, he he would tolerate. Uh, people not uh, working with you a little more than I did. And uh, in fact, one time, Carolyn, he said to me, he said, Daddy, sometimes I wish you'd never taught me how to handle a horse. And then he could work with those idiots. But, but you did teach him how to handle a horse. I did, yes. And, and uh, that what, he was, what he was suggesting on that was if he didn't know, maybe it wouldn't be so tough to put up with them. But there again, we've got the greatest customers. What is it about handling horses that you taught Tyler? That everyone's different. That you have to uh, that you have to uh, go along with them. You have to read them. Uh, like uh, I knew he was catching on when these people bring these fly masks on the horse, and uh, he reaches up and but one's uh, getting a little misbehave and and he reach up and takes the fly mask off and the uh, lady who's running the farm gets on him for doing it and he said no I got to read those eyes so he was uh he was catching on isn't that wonderful oh it is yes you uh, they're no different than people they're no different than us they have expressions they have uh, body language and, uh, and, and you uh, you go along with it if uh, if a person with manners, if uh, uh, working with a horse, they understand manners better than they do a cussing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, if you, uh, if a horse comes to, you're in his uh, way, you move to get out of the way, just like you do a, a person. Uh, they understand that. And they'll do it for you, too. Yeah, you don't have to hit them. You don't have to fuss at them. They, once you uh, get to work with them, they'll know. I love it. I love it. Um, are we leaving any horses out that you wanted to talk about? Oh, that would take, that would take the rest of the year you know, because I love <laughs> them all. Uh, even, even the mean ones you had uh, one horse on that list there you read the name Kennedy Rhodes mm -hmm. uh, he killed a man and uh, I actually drug a man out of the stall 
with him. I went in there with him, and uh, and I used a, and I used a tone of voice that my dad used when he was breaking horses and mules, and he said, uh, "They won't bother you when they think they've met their maker." And that's what I used. That, uh, that's what your dad said? That's what my dad said. And yeah. what was that tone of voice? A, a very rough voice, uh, very low and loud. And you said whoa is a word we don't use enough of. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, Chris McCarran and I was talking that we don't use the, the language that these horses understand. Uh, they have a they have a, a simple language and it's kind of born in them, bred in them, like a bird dog hunting birds. Uh, they know, and there's many ways that, that my father used uh, words uh, when he would say "whoa." If he wanted them to stop fast, he said it fast. If he wanted them to talk, slow down easy, he said it easy and slow, and they did it. Uh, they they understand. As do you. You've taken care of the greats throughout your career. You've left a lasting legacy for blacksmiths going forward through your son, Tyler. And uh, I'd just like to say on behalf of the horse community, thank you for your contribution. Oh, appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And you have a wonderful way of signing off. Um, and John Williams summed it up in a letter that he sent your way. And uh, I think you said it to me when I said goodbye on the phone yesterday and what was that holler if you need something <laughs> thanks for your time today you beach bet. you bet i enjoyed it thank you thoroughly enjoyed it thank you for joining me on this episode of racehorses etc please go to carolynconley.com and become a racehorses insider We'll keep you up to date with exclusive content and more. That's it for now. Remember, until we meet again, enjoy the horses.